welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the co-founder and CEO of Grown Alchemist, Jeremy Mose. I completely disregarded the clock during this interview because everything Jeremy had to share was so valuable. And even now I feel I have so much more to learn from him. Jeremy and his brother Keston grew up in something of a creative household. Their father, a creative businessman, and their mother, a fashion creative. Where Jeremy inherited his father's passion for business, Keston had his mother's creative eye. So the two grew up working on creative projects together, from building furniture to selling fish. Jeremy and Keston took on very different careers in very different parts of the world as young adults before coming together to launch Hatch, a consultancy company based in New Zealand. With ample opportunities coming out of the US, the pair moved to Miami, and it was while consulting and developing products for other beauty brands that they first became aware of the link between wellness and beauty. At the turn of the century, Jeremy and Keston began having conversations about the emergence of new niche beauty brands, and they pushed their corporate clients to start taking risks on more creative formulas. Frustrated by a wall of no's, the pair took it upon themselves to create Grown Alchemist, an organic and toxin-free beauty brand that took six years and a move back to Australia to see through to fruition. The real beauty of Grown Alchemist is in the experience and the ritual, which comes as no surprise given that Jeremy's first memory of beauty is that of a Clinique ritual taught to him on a department store floor. Jeremy is a gifted storyteller and regardless of whether or not you have an interest in beauty or even in business, there is something to be learned from this conversation. In this episode, Jeremy shares the differences between the Southern and Northern Hemisphere's approaches to beauty and business, the link between our body, our skin and our mind, and the truly terrifying experience of getting grown alchemist onto department store shelves. So you were running the business with your brother. Can you tell me a bit about your upbringing? Did you grow up in a creative household? Um, in part. Um, I, I think Dad was a creative business person, mm-hmm. um, but not not visually creative. Right. Uh, we used to always have him on about his terrible 80s um, grey slip-on shoes, um, <laughs> which we've, we managed to finally get off him. Um, mum, mum was more, uh, definitely more creative. Um, she... Uh, was in textiles and fashion, mm-hmm. and so she used to basically import garments, amazing, uh, or import fabric for for fashion designers when we used to make fashion in Australasia. Yeah, um, and so she would always be showing us swatches and talking about the trends that were going on in Europe and things like that. Um, and I sort of erred personally more. I was more interested naturally in the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Keston, um, my brother, w- was definitely, he showed a more creative flair um, very mm-hmm. early on. And so he was always doing crazy creative things. Um, right. And then eventually led him initially to art school mm-hmm. um, where he he would have, 
you know, all sorts of contraptions that he would rig up around the house to create prints. And I remember sitting in the lounge once and he was, and the car was going back and forth in the garage at a crazy rate of knots. Yeah. And Dad and I both went, what on earth is going on? <laughs> and so we walk out and he's inked up a, like a board and he's running the car over the board to get a bit of weight and make a, a press. I mean, um, so he, all power to him. To which Dad at that point went, is this where I'm spending all my money at university? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's often the case with the arts. I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what did you think you were going to be when you grew up, while your brother's rolling back and forth? Rolling back and forth. Look, I always imagined I uh, would do something in business. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think we grew up in an entre- we did grow up in an entrepreneurial house. Dad was uh, uh, created a bunch of companies, yeah, and always was on something new that he thought was interesting. Um, and I think business per se had a lot of respect in our household, and I uh, that's why I take my hat off to to Keston, who was very determined to do creative things, whether it was product development or just general creative in, um, uh, um, endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, because it wasn't, I think, as highly valued in our household as right. as being in business. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think um, uh, the the sort of the facts that the fact that we're very very different people mm. um, has helped uh, in terms of that sort of working relationship and 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 helped me become more creative and helped him sort of become maybe more commercial. <laughs> but I think that's, I mean, that's probably the case with any, like, business partnership, brothers or otherwise, you have to be bringing different skills to the table or it'd just be an absolute nightmare. Yeah, fighting over the same patch. <laughs> <laughs> so you've obviously got some early memories of business and of design coming from your mum. Do you have any early memories of beauty? Well, so um, we, mum was always into beauty. But um, she wasn't a, fan, a, a fanatic, and we never really had a, enough money in our family to, for her to be a fanatic um, mm-hmm. in, in terms of beauty. But we, she did love going into. We grew up in New Zealand, so she would go to um, Smith and Coey, um, which was our kind of premium department store, mm-hmm. and she would look around um, and do fashion and take us past the the skincare and color cosmetic counters. Yeah. And, um, and the thing that I always find found fascinating about it was I was more lured by the packaging, not yep. so much the actual product. And we were hanging around, and this was my first real memory. Um, I would have been about ten, maybe eleven, and um, a very um, active counter person grabbed me and said, and she was from clinic, and she said to me. Um, you know, have you got a beauty regime? And I was like, I'm 11, <laughs> nine, 10, 11, I, I don't know. No, I don't. And she said, oh, you should, definitely should start. So she gave me some samples. Uh-huh. And she gave me um, the little sliding soap. Yeah. And then a couple of luxury samples of the, um, in those days it was called a toner, but it then became the exfoliant and, mm-hmm. the moist, and the dramatically different moisturizer, which was in play many, many years ago. Yes. And An I found the whole thing quite, like I loved, I loved a couple of things about it. I loved the packaging, but I also loved the order of doing things. Yes, and feeling like I was doing something properly. It's like a ritual. A ritual. Mm. And at the time, I had a paper round, so I started 
the paper round didn't pay much. It was about eleven, twelve dollars a week, uh-huh. um, which was a lot of money back in the in the eighties. But, <laughs> um, but so I would spend uh, a disproportionate amount of my paper round money actually on. I had two obligations. One was to pay back my BMX that dad, mum and dad bought me. To oh, do worthy the investment. And the second was I would spend a huge majority on my beauty re- re- regime. Amazing. And, and actually. Uh, Keston would look at me and go, why are you doing this? And I had the bottles lined up and and would, je- you know, guard them jealously um, so he didn't <laughs> dip into them. And then I went back to counter uh, to buy some more um, of the the soap mm-hmm. and um, the face soap. And I then got served by a YSL uh-huh. on the clinic counter yeah. who, who actually by the end of the transaction had converted me to YSL. <laughs> So um, she recruited me. That's and a I know, good salesperson. I know, I know, a good salesperson. And I, the packaging YSL at the time was beautifully, was a beautiful cylindrical white mm. pure packaging with Heaven. pop-up pumps and all sorts of stuff like that. And I thought it was just stunning. And so I then, but, but it upped my beauty bill. Oh, it would have. So then I had actually had to, eventually I had to change jobs and it was um, not... Well, I'd be surprised <laughs> if you kept the paper round well into your 20s. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, so that kind of was my earliest recollection of really being interested and it, it didn't sort of come from a beauty perspective. It came from a packaging and marketing mm-hmm. and, and sort of the, 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 the order and how they sold the system and then the feeling of doing something like a regime in a in a in a thorough way, mm. um, and I think that that process never left me. The fascination with the industry and the feeling of the department store, even today, I love walking department stores, mm. just looking at what's going on and how people are merchandising and marketing and communicating to consumers and and um, and animating. Mm. So yeah. It's funny you've said Clinique, though, because I think I've had a few people that Clinique's been their first memory. Because I feel like they pioneered sort of gift with purchase and then that whole, the idea of one step, two step. And for, for uh, you know, a young person, three products, as, mm. as a, you know, it's such a nice thing yeah. to be able to go one, two, three, done. Um, and they were very good at communicating it. They used that, even back then they had that gorgeous, you know, um, wheel of... Mm. of this is who you are. Yes, I know it well. There seemed to be some science with it, yes. which is fun. Um, and so, you know, I think that they were so good at, at, at taking people from basically very little to getting them into a mm. program. Yep. No, I'm, I'm pretty much the same. I think that was my first thing, <laughs> cleanse, tone, moisturise. Yeah. And I thought, this is, this is the elixir <laughs> of you. So I understand that what led to you and your brother starting your first business together was that you worked on a grad project together. But... I want to rewind even further. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that he was studying arts. Yep. How did your, you know, tertiary studies go? Well, so um, I ended up doing some business degrees. Yeah, um, makes and, sense. And uh, and was very really focused on business and then left New Zealand. Uh, he stayed in New Zealand, went to Australia for a short period of time, mm-hmm. completely different industry into telco. Yeah. Um, and then found that pretty soulless. Yeah, um, it was a booming time for Delco, but it was like, yeah, okay, you know, fine. Yes, it's very. Um, it wasn't where my heart was. Went and shifted to London, mm-hmm. uh, and then started to consult back into the industry of beauty, um, 
and uh, did a few, uh, a couple of projects. Mm-hmm. At, while I was doing that, Keston had started in New Zealand a small product development company. Right. And so we, I used him, you paying him in pounds, which in those days was like three pounds to a dollar uh-huh. in New Zealand. Uh, um, used him to do some product development for me on one of my projects. And it went really, really well. And his, his sort of caveat was, if I do this for you, uh, and he gave me a great price, because I'd actually already spent my budget and they hadn't done a good job. So yeah. I managed to get a little more budget, and but it wasn't nearly as much as my original <laughs> budget. Um, and, and he did it for that number. And then I, and he said to me, but you have to come skiing with me in, in Queenstown. And I said, okay. Yeah, it's not a bad compromise. Let's, let's, let's do it, right? And so and, and when you're dividing the skiing holiday by three in terms of what you're earning, New Zealand's a very cost-effective place. It's uh-huh. just getting there, right? So I said, okay, well, I'll come down, visit you. Haven't seen you for in person for about a, nearly a year. Let's go skiing together. Mm-hmm. So we went, arrived in Auckland. We went straight down to Queenstown, had a fantastic time skiing, and then... On the second night, we were sitting around in one of those gorgeous Queenstown restaurants, and he said, um, "He said to me, so obviously you're loving London.'" And I said, "Yeah, absolutely loving it." And he said, "So, what do you want to do long term?" And I said, "Well, you know, uh, I'm developing this thing. Maybe develop it a bit further. I'm mm-hmm. not, not quite sure." And he goes, "No, but like really long term." And I said, well, "I've always imagined just starting a business." Yeah. And he said, and I said, well, and to be honest, I've always sort of pictured doing something with you, you know. Uh, and we did some projects together, just random things when we were kids that we were sort of forced into. Some of them were design projects. Mm-hmm. Um, so we made some furniture um, for our house. Um, for Dad bought this, built this kind. Mum and Dad built this kind of um, almost flat mm-hmm. on the side of our house. Um, with its own entrance and it felt very grown up and we made furniture for it and God, that's a substantial things. project when you said you were working on things together i'm like oh the finger <laughs> painting um and so that was uh, a lot of fun we really enjoyed the working process together um because we just did so 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 many different things uh, in the process and then dad had a a, a, um, a customer who uh basically couldn't pay their bill and said and, and he basically, he said, look, I've got um, a few ton of orange roughy fish, very random, mm-hmm. um, that would I be able to pay you in fish? And it sounds like some archaic bartering system, but... I mean, um, why not give so, it a go? So Dad said, well, okay, it's better to get paid in fish than not to get paid at all. So he took on uh, about two ton of orange roughy fish that was snap frozen. Right. And they used to, they used to basically harvest orange roughy for the oil, uh, for the fish oil because it's very deep and they have an oil sack on mm. top of their head. And so the, the actual fillets weren't perceived as that valuable. So he got this two-ton. A friend of his had a storage, uh, a, a, a massive commercial freezer. He put mm-hmm. it in the freezer and he said, well, I've got to turn this fish into money. How about we give you the project, Jeremy, of selling the fish? Oh, my God. So that became a little project and it was actually really profitable i could make more in selling uh fish in, mm. in one day than i would ever make on my paper round so we should have combined forces and and did a few projects like that some that keston took the lead on some that i took the lead on 
And so when we were sitting in Queenstown, uh, you know, I said, look, I always imagined that somehow would continue, but we've kind of gone and done different things, different tertiary uh, education, mm. uh, and then also started different sort of businesses. Mm. Yours is uh, more creative and working with um, cosmetic chemists and those kind of people, it's a more creative endeavor. Also, you're working with designers and other people, mm. um, and naturally you're designing yourself. So all of that, um, is different to what I'm doing. I'm sort of more Anderson Consulting kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I felt like there was a, a you know a long term play that we could work together. And he said, which kind of took me by surprise. So why don't we start that now? And I said, well, because I need an income. Mm, that. And, <laughs> and and I have got some retainers and things that are happening that I can rely on month in month out. And he said, yeah, but we don't have any children and we don't have any partners. What what have you got to lose? Yeah. And, and that was kind of the... And I said, well, you know, it's a big jump and I feel like I just want to get some money behind me first and so that we've got some money to begin with, a bit of a fund. Of, yes. And, and to which he said, look, you'll never have enough money and you'll never be the right time and it'll never be perfect. And But at the moment, if it all goes pear-shaped, really, what do we lose? Yeah. So that was kind of the um, catalyst. Yeah. He, he totally put the catalyst on the table. And by the end of the ski trip, which was about 10 days, I had actually quit my... Um, Love it. ...my retainers and, and, mm -hmm. and the work that I was doing in London. I'd asked mum and dad to pack up my flat because they were living over there at the time. And I actually didn't go back for about a year and a half and we began a business called Hatch, which yes. was the consultancy company. So we pretty much just took our two consultancies and combined them into one. Okay. And Make uh, it sound so easy. Yeah, it was, it was, it was you know. Uh, and the scary thing, though, for me was New Zealand's so small and how do you make money out of New Zealand? Mm -hmm. um, because the client list is less and people pay less. And, but then the cost of living is less. So it was a frightening first six months. Um, and we had the fortune of, of we got a flat together, rented a flat, which was on the beach in Takapuna, which is kind of like a, um, a beach near the city. Mm -hmm. It's a, kind of the Bondi of Auckland. Okay. Um, and uh, it, was a it was the first house on the beach, 1920s, 1910, I think it was actually. Um, and the lady who owned it lived in Sydney and she was born in the house. Mm -hmm. She was at that point, late, uh, early 90s, and she's late 90s actually. And she said to me, um, she said to her son who was managing the property, Look, I don't really care about the rent, I just want people who respect the house. Oh, that's right? so nice. So she was such a lovely um, oh. person. And, uh, and it turned out that he knew the guy that was managing her son that was managing it, um, knew dad and said, well, you got, and we applied for the place, and, and it was literally 1950s rent prices. Amazing. And he said, well, you can take the house, right? And as long as you look after it. And we said, great, we'll look after it. Wow. So we were sitting on this property, um, and uh, it was quite funny because the houses next to us were like four, five, it was up to $10 million houses, mm -hmm. and we're sitting in this house paying 500 bucks a week. Um, in Heaven. rent yep. with sea views on the sea and we would swim in the morning have breakfast uh, on the table out the front of the house and then 
we would sit there. And I said, uh, it was the first week, and I said, so how do, we, how do you normally bring in clients? Uh-huh. And he said, well, they just sort of come. <laughs> and I said, this is before what social media or anything. Fabulous strategy. And I said, this is a scary strategy. What if they don't come? He said, oh, they'll come. Oh and God. I said, but what if this is like the one time that they don't come? And we don't have any clients and we can't pay our rent mm-hmm. and the whole thing just implodes. Yeah, very real concern yeah. to have. <laughs> and he said, oh, no, don't worry. They'll turn up. He oh. said, they always do. How is the blind optimism? <laughs> That's a strategy so, I mean, in itself. It was so naive and so ridiculous. And I just was like, this is absolutely absurd. I've made a really bad decision. Um, and about three weeks later, we got a call and it was our first job. Amazing. And it was kind of right at the time we needed it, um, and where I was starting to freak out because you know, you, you get past that first month where the check normally arrives in your bank account, and it doesn't arrive, and you're like, oh my gosh, is this real? There's no yeah. money coming in the account, and so that's the I guess the, the that was probably one of the scary. There's been several scary moments, but that was definitely one of the scary moments. Cash like, flow okay. is a very fun <laughs> thing to wrap your head around when you start a business. It is, and it's and it's kind of, um, but because there were two of us, we we kind of would console each other and feel like we're in this together. Yeah. We'll make it work somehow, right? Mm. So uh, we got this job. Um, it was an, it was a very small job, and then it went really well. And then we got another job. And then I got a call from a, uh, a guy that I'd worked with in America who had switched to a new company mm-hmm. and wanted us to do some work for him. And, and his num- budgets were much bigger and they were US dollars, which is mm-hmm. super good. And so I flew over um, to visit him and uh, we ended up getting a job, which for what we were paying ourselves, which is about... We were drawing about two thousand dollars a month mm-hmm. each, and we we're paying five hundred bucks of rent. Yep, a week, another two grand. So we could pretty much survive on you know six grand a month between us, mm. with a little with mm. you know. So it was very economically yes. efficient. Um, <laughs> Again, and I, putting it very <laughs> politely. And and I sort of felt like. I didn't realise the value of actually doing it that way at the time because burn rate, I've learned since, is your enemy and <laughs> if you can keep the burn rate down, yeah. it's a wonderful thing. Um, and we sort of did it, did it accidentally because we're working out of our home. We had the huge front room which became our office which overlooked the ocean, just was stunning. Mm. We wanted to spend the time there anyway. Um, and then we lived in the same house mm-hmm. um, and I had a little office there and it was like, it just worked mm. for the time of life that we're at. Yeah. Um, I think if you had kids and a family, you can't afford to do that kind Absolutely of thing. Absolutely not. <laughs> it changes the dynamic a bit. But, um, and then we got this job and basically it took us about three months. We got the check, we banked the check and the exchange rate worked in our favour. And I looked at the bank account and I said, do you realise based on our current burn rate, we've got like about 15 months worth of income in our bank. Mm-hmm. So we can we can not do another job for fifteen months, and we literally That's will be fine. A nice spot to be. So it was just we went from like complete famine to you know like oh my gosh this is incredible. So and then we got another job off the back of that job mm-hmm. in America also, and so America started to be a really good 
opportunity for us. And it was on our fourth job in America in the space of about uh, 12 months that we started to realize that America would be a great op opportunity. Mm. Um, and I was spending about 60 to 70% of my time traveling yeah. in America. So I mooted this idea of why don't we shift to America? And it was really hard because we had mm. such a great setup in New Zealand and New Zealand was cheap and we knew everybody there. But really, we had like one project a year coming out of New Zealand now and everything was overseas. Right. So we agreed that would be a good idea and we ended up shifting to Miami, mm -hmm. which was now in the late 90s uh, in Miami. Uh-huh. And so that was a market that was completely booming totally by accident from our perspective. Mm. Um, the, it was a, a real regeneration stage in Miami where a lot of Latin American people coming into town um, and it was becoming uh, a big hub for New Yorkers to visit right. um, and retail, uh, uh, sorry, uh, residential property was booming, mm -hmm. um, incredible amount of development was going on and so it was a great time to be there. and. We would do most of our work uh, from Miami and then uh, New York's an hour away by flight, so you jump mm -hmm. off the plane if you have to, but New Yorkers love to come down. Perfect. So we would, you know, we kind of lived this really quite utopic lifestyle in Miami and lived in Key Biscayne, which is just out of, uh, it's, a, it's an island closest to South Beach. Mm. So it was fantastic. Oh, nice. Um, and, and that's kind of where Nahatch USA was born and we started to do a lot more in that space. Right. I, I did want to ask you a mm. bit about North America and the time that you spent living there. I know we're talking 90s, but did you notice any differences in the way that the US approaches beauty and even business as opposed to the Southern Hemisphere? Yeah. Well, certainly in that time, so um, the US... The market, and particularly in the 90s, was enormously dominated by big players. Right. And I think the thing that, the reason we were such a small company and the reason that we got airtime in America with some of the bigger players was because they had, over time, developed quite sophisticated procedures to developing product mm -hmm. and brands and... Um, and lines for new lines for existing brands. Right. That they had lost some of the creativity. And on a development level, uh, they were sort of doing more of the same. Mm -hmm. And what we would call leapfrogging. So it wasn't revolutionary. It was like just a jump over the competitor. Right. right. And then the competitor would go, oh, yeah, we could do it better. And they would sort of jump back over them. Mm. And the people that were sort of looking at the space were saying, well, look, we want some fresh thinking. So we had some opportunity to provide that fresh thinking. And so that, uh, and then from a consumer perspective, um, department store was enormously strong. Mm -hmm. It was dominated, dominated the beauty landscape. But there were some emerging, very small emerging retailers starting to come to life. Uh, this is well before people like Credo and Detox Market and those yes. kind of people in the US. Um, uh, but they were just starting and there was 
the very, very, very beginning of niche beauty with brands like Kiehl's that had made it yeah. sort of just onto the beauty floor in America. And there was, an, there was definitely a desire for those brands from the consumer, something different, something mm. not as mainstream, not necessarily the brand that mum bought. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first generation and the first conversation that we started to... Up, up till then, the mantra in beauty was you need to capture the consumer young, you need to change the habits of the mum generally, yeah. um, and then they will pass those habits on to their daughters and sons, mm-hmm. and then you will have that consumer for nearly life. Right. And this was the first instant when we sort of clicked over in the year 2000 where actually that consumer who was probably born in the 80s, -hmm. Very early 80s, maybe late 70s, was then saying to mum, Yeah, your skincare's naff. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to have your skincare. Yeah. There's a cooler thing happening, and this is what you should be using. But there was a real deficient, a a real gap with just the number of new brands that were coming out. So the bigger companies were looking to do something, some more creative things. Right. The challenge was. You would present creative ideas. At their inception, they were well-received. By the time they got to market, they were very, very different. Mm-hmm. Because those businesses are generally run by committee okay. when it comes to product development and innovation. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for them to be risky right? and to, to sort of go out on a limb. And also, is a real disincentive to do it because if it fails... You lose your job. Yes, you uh, do. <laughs> and it, but if you don't try you probably don't lose your job. Mm. So, the you know, you just sort of kind of do the next thing. Yeah, and you just As long as there's some safe. success, you're fine, mm. right? So um, that culture was just starting to change and there were a bunch of smaller um, initiatives that were starting to take hold, one of the first of which was a company which no longer exists, I don't think, in America mm. called... Pangina. I, I haven't heard of it. So Pangina Organics was the first one that I can remember that started to sell their product in Whole Foods and Wild Oats. Ah. So completely outside of the traditional beauty program. Yeah. They, uh, it was a young guy who basically cooked up some soap on a stove and was like, this is cool. Ta-da. This is the next best thing, the next big thing. And the soap was kind of a cure-all. Yep. Um, and it was primarily soap. Um, later, I think that he did a moisturizer, but but it was very very early. Um, it was extremely well received mm-hmm. amongst a certain set, but there was a huge part of the population that was not interested in buying their skincare in mm-hmm. Whole Foods or Wild Oats, um, and certainly didn't even really get. Most of the population at that point didn't even get natural food, right? Or organic food. So that was really just starting. Yeah. And uh, and so yeah, that that was it was a it was very traditional, dominated by tra- our consumers were our customers were traditional beauty people with the exception of a couple, um, but it was changing quickly. Mm. And as we turned the corner into sort of the two thousands, um, we saw more and more 
um, a greater proliferation of smaller companies that were starting to enter the fray. Right. I understand that it was while you were developing products for other brands that you first kind of became aware of that link that you're talking about now between wellness, you know, as a very broad umbrella term, and beauty. Can you talk me through your findings at that time? Um, It was really... um, We weren't your typical wellness consumer. Right. So we're living in Key Biscayne. Um, we, had, we had sort of struck a deal with a property there, which was the Ritz-Carlton property, to, mm-hmm. um, to have uh, one of their um, apartments uh, oh. at a very low rate. That's a nice and, little deal. And all the <laughs> flashings that came with that, right? Um, and so there were beautiful pools and bars and mm. beach clubs and all those sorts of things that were just fantastic. And we were enjoying um, all of them. And... Um, and it was a – there was a book that came out called Wellness, the Next Trillion Dollar Industry. Okay. And the guy and, – and the first – there was, a, there was a, um, a senior vice president for sales and marketing in one of the companies we were working with said, this apparently is the next big thing. How does it relate to beauty? So basically the guy that wrote it had talked about wellness in a number of aspects but hadn't really hit the beauty um, – uh, market. Mm. He talked about food. He talked about things like um, um, meditation, healthy environments, um, all the sort of things that went around it. Yeah. Even things like the proliferation of Velcro and how mm. Velcro might hit you know the market based on ease of you know for shoes and for aging population, yep. and all that sort of thing. Um, but it hadn't really hit beauty, and so. Um, we were asked to look at the space um, as part of sort of our commitment to um, uh, looking at innovation and things like of that. Course. So we created a little project where we first wanted to understand what the heck wellness was, was about. Yes. It was one of those terms that was, was used, but um, no one really understood it. Mm-hmm. And we just – because if you'd said to someone back in even 2000 um, – you should eat natural food, they would look at you like you were insane. <laughs> like, isn't food natural, right? Mm-hmm. It should be natural. What do you mean natural food? And so we sort of, we, we looked at all parts of our life in that same, um, through the same lens. Mm. So people were not conscious of, you know, paint could be toxic, dyes and clothes could be toxic. Right. Um, there's, there's pollution in environments that could be toxic in terms of things that we put into our furnishings that mm. emit vapour and all those sorts of things were not on the radar. So we began to say, so we said, look, first we've got to understand what this thing called wellness is. We defined it. We, we went and met with a whole bunch of people, some who were very learned and articulate, some who were what I really described as complete nut jobs. Yeah. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, and later sort of redefined my expectation and went, actually, they were quite clever people that <laughs> that just appeared very unusual, not, mm-hmm. not traditional, you know, practitioners and those kinds of things. And really, um, we came down to, to, we defined it in five categories. Yeah. Um, one, one was food. Sure. So... Uh, what is enzyme intact food? And in, in a place just north of Miami called Aventura, which was 
there's a there's a mall there called Bell Harbour, which is mm -hmm. a gorgeous shopping mall, indoor, outdoor, tropical plants. It has all of your key brands: Gucci, Neiman Marcus is at one end, Saks is at the other, mm -hmm. um, and then all these beautiful stores in between. In a strip mall near there, there was one shop that was doing things like cold pressed juicing orange juice. Which would have been a foreign, foreign concept we, at the time. We didn't even know what cold press was. Mm -hmm. And, and um, all I remember is um, I ordered an orange juice and it cost $9.50 yep. US. And I went, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I can buy like a quarter, a quart of orange juice, like four litres of orange mm -hmm. juice or whatever it is, for like three fifty. I'm getting a glass for nine fifty. Yep. And he said to me, I said, what's the deal with the orange juice? And he said, um, I've, I've converted a wheatgrass juicer, press, cold press juicer, to an orange cold press juice machine. And what it does is it doesn't heat up the juice by slicing it and cutting it, which kills the enzymes. It keeps all the enzymes intact. Mm -hmm. And I went, what are enzymes? Yes. And he said, <laughs> he said well, those are the things that really uh, carry the nutrients and help with... Um, actually um, releasing nutrients into the body. And so when you do that, if you kill enzymes, you actually, uh, you actually kill a lot of the goodness and, and you basically are drinking sugar. Mm -hmm. So we cold press them, which keeps them perfectly intact, and they survive for about 72 hours. Uh, you get nutrition immediately, but after 72 hours, you're basically throwing that juice away and starting over. Yeah. So if you drink it quite quickly from the press, actually it's as good as eating oranges um, and, and for the body and actually more efficient in terms of digestion. So that's the reason at $9.50. Well, it started, that started on a bit of a food trend of what is, how does natural food work differently in the body than mm -hmm. other things that we put in our body and how do we... Uh, increase the quality of fuel yeah so we got into activated almonds and all sorts of things like that yes um different kinds of proteins and and we became a little bit weird um people would invite us to dinner parties and we would pack our own food and get them mm -hmm. to cook our food and, <laughs> and it was very antisocial. we didn't get a lot of second invites around that time it would be like <laughs> it was but so you were learning we were learning so um but then that started to transfer to a new space, which was digestion. Mm -hmm. And um, we realized that you can increase the quality of your fuel, a food, you know, the food that you, you yeah. take. But if you don't increase the quality of your engine, which essentially is the digestive system, right. you don't get the benefit. Of course. And, um, and there was a practitioner who was very clever in the space that started to sort of educate us into what is a great digestive system and how to repopulate it. Mm -hmm. And they were working on a natural human-based probiotic, which we got involved in, that was the first real non-bovine-based probiotic okay. that, uh, that had entered the market, based on basically stem cells from embryonic fluid. So um, it's a, the, body, the body's an amazing thing, and the whole birth process is incredible mm. how one drop of embryonic fluid populates the digestive system f for life, really. Mm. Wild. Um, and it's just the erosion of that good bacteria through things like antibiotics and chemicals and all that sort of thing that n requires some degree of maintenance. Mm -hmm. So we got fascinated with digestion and started taking this probiotic, which you would incubate and refining it and working with them on how to, to bring it to market. And, 
and that became another pillar. Um, environmental Im- impact was enormously uh, impactful, right. but very difficult to control. Yeah, of course. Um, you can make some conscious decisions, but it's tricky, but also has a significant impact. Um, but perhaps the biggest impact that we could see in beauty was uh, actually the chemical reactions we create as people. Mm-hmm. We got involved with a guy who was dealing with uh, chemotherapy or cancer cancer patients rehabilitation. And he made a comment to us very flippantly. He said, before we do any sort of, we're asking about his process. And he said, before we do any sort of um, uh, real physical rehabilitation, we start emotionally and we, we go through a process of forgiveness in our patients because a lot of them have been misdiagnosed and and have recognized that something was up for a long time but their practitioners didn't catch it and they get really resentful Mm. because they like if we could have got this a month earlier this would have been incredible right or even a month sometimes in some cases years earlier that they identified something that wasn't right and the practitioner just never picked up on it Mm. so without forgiveness this is his mantra, Um, you can't release. And actually releasing creates a more, a whole bunch of positive chemical responses in the body. Okay. Resentment does the opposite. So in order to aid the body to heal, you have to create the right environment for it to heal. And part of that, a huge part of that, is chemical reactions we create. So so at this point, I went, okay, you're nuts. Let's move on. <laughs> and then he said, just think about this for a second. Um, l- let's talk about stress. Mm. So stress is incredible. We know stress is aging. Yes, we do. <laughs> and But why is stress aging? It's aging because the emotional responses that you experience create a chemical reaction that can sometimes come over you like a wave. Mm-hmm. That's an important thing because sometimes it can help you to act, but prolonged periods of stress actually create dysfunction in the body. Mm-hmm. And that is, that, is, that is a dangerous thing for all things in the body, including uh, renewal yeah. and including beauty. So if we can help some of the involuntary responses that we can currently consider out of our control to be more conscious, actually we can change the way that your body renews. For instance, he believed that an hour's worth of meditation is worth three hours of sleep. Okay. And, and since then, there's been a lot of evidence to prove the fact that he was actually correct. Mm. So he would build his patients up to long periods of meditation and then implement things like yoga and all sorts of processes that were very renewing and, um, and internally good. Mm-hmm. So for the body and for function in the body. So that was a very ethereal thing, but actually was an important part of the beauty play. Mm. And then, of course, topical was, was, was a part. So of course. we started through, really it was a, the f- through food, realizing how the body takes in and absorbs food and the handshakes that go on with food, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way, um, in the body and how the body goes. I recognize naturally molecular structures and when something's naturally molecular, in other words, natural, yes, um, it 
the body responds to it differently than if it's artificial. Mm-hmm. So this is the what I would call the miracle of the body, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we have a crazy little daughter, um, my wife and I, called Emily, who has always been a little dynamo. My mm-hmm. her older brother sits at the table when he eats his food, and he's very formal. And he, um, you know, he has he, he calls it um, when he was five. He used to call it a proper dinner, and he would oh. have a candle and a napkin. Oh and my god! Deal, right? And he loved it. He absolutely loved it. Amazing. And so we thought, oh well, Emily will be the same. Um, so we sat her there, and she ha- wouldn't have a bar of it. And so she would run around, and finally we just went, well, look, let's run with it for a while. <laughs> yep. And so we would just give her food that she could eat on the run. Mm-hmm. And she was running around with a carrot in her hand, munching down on this carrot. And it sort of hit me at that point, and I thought, isn't it amazing? I had a day where um, my wife, who is incredible with the kids, uh, and really um, sort of runs the show, um, <laughs> Uh, she had handed on to me for a day, <clears throat> and I thought, you know, this could be should be relatively easy. This will be fine. Um, this is fine. And by the end of the day, I was like ready to, you know, I think kill them all. Um, but uh, but the bottom <laughs> Flee line the is, country and go into witness <laughs> yeah, protection. Basically, uh, and so uh, I had a day, what I I'd call it a day of no's, where I just said no, 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 don't, don't, no, don't, uh, the whole day. And it was at the end of the day where she was eating a dinner and she was eating a carrot and I thought to myself, you know, I have to teach her so many things from language to not biting your brother uh, <laughs> yeah. or strangling a cat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have to teach her how to digest. Somehow her body just knows how, mm-hmm. without any education, to take in a carrot, to extract the nutrients and to disseminate them in the body. And this, I think, is the profound part of natural. Right. There, you know, um, I had a, I, I was in Sweden and we had a, <clears throat> a bunch of cosmetic um, scientists and actually uh, um, human biologists as well mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the space and we could, in, 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 the, in the conference. And you could basically divide them into two categories, natural and and traditional, right? And the traditional ones are quite, they believe in the molecular capability of something. So they say if something's molecularly identical, it means it's the same. So if we create something in a lab that's molecularly identical to something that's in nature, it's not similar, it's identical. So therefore the body should behave identically to it. Sure. Now, I think this is where there are two things that go on. Sometimes we think something's molecularly identical and it's not. Right. So we've had nature equivalent chamomile that's been redefined several times and now it's sort of at its latest version Mm -hmm. because we keep discovering there are things in chamomile that we didn't realise were in it naturally. I think the second is when we we have a good understanding of naturally um, the, the natural molecular structure and we replicate it very, very closely or even identically... But still the body has a different response to it. Yeah. So even at that level, there's research that came out nearly 10 years ago now that um, it was around vitamin E, a molecular identical vitamin E. It was about 1.4 times better 
receptivity in the body without any negative side effects if it's natural mm -hmm. versus if it's molecularly identical. So there were things like that that started to trigger that in the food space that started to trigger in the topical space um, thoughts around, well, is nature a better source of ingredients, full stop? Okay. Um, because the body receives, identifies, recognizes, and, re and utilizes that ingredient in a better way, in a more complete way, mm -hmm. without any negative side effects. And so that's when sort of some lights went on around, well, maybe some of the artificial ingredients or, or traditional cosmetic ingredients that we've traditionally used to preserve to as surfactants or whatever mm. should, should be swapped out if possible. So then that sort of the topical part started to play into the food part and, and we kind of developed um, uh, a more holistic view of what we were doing. Right. It was food, it was emotional, it was environmental, digestive and topical. And they became our touch points, basically. Um, so we went back to this guy and said, this is profound. This mm -hmm. is a real opportunity. If this industry, if wellness is something that's going to take off and it's not just going to be a fad, uh, this is huge. Even if it doesn't, I think there's a real opportunity to create products that are just better. Yeah. And to sort of educate people about their skin and that it's not just a topical thing, it's an integrated thing. Yeah. And so he listened very politely to our presentation and we said, we think we can do some projects for you that will, in formulation, and we've actually created some samples mm -hmm. uh, of natural formulations that we would like to sort of get you to try and experience that mimic some of the artificial Perhaps not quite as well at that point, but you know, with development time, we think we can get there. Mm. He looked at us and said, "Don't bother." <laughs> uh, he, get, he said, "Look, this is the bleeding edge of the business." There were three reasons he gave. One, he said, "I don't believe the market's ready," and not sure if there is a market here. Okay. Which I think probably in two thousand one was probably pretty yeah. smart. Um, there wasn't a, really a high demand for it back mm -hmm. then. Second uh, reason he gave was that the cost of goods was significantly higher than what they were currently paying, and that's an issue because sure. there's, the whole industry is built off a certain kind mm. of cost of goods. And then thirdly, um, scalability was difficult with natural because you, you don't necessarily get the same amount of an ingredient every year, and if you're a very big company, you're launching a product in 400,000 units. Whereas in a small company, you might be launching in 2,000 units. Yeah. So the ability to actually scale up for a larger company is prohibitive uh, and certainly was back then. And the range of ingredients was more limited. Um, organic natural ingredients for beauty were not as wide. Uh, the, the, the palette wasn't as great as it, as it, as it is today. Mm -hmm. So it kind of got, um, it got knocked back basically. And we thought, okay, well, if you don't want it, one of our other clients will. So we went around um, and basically shopped it around and said, look, you know, we've done this work. If you're interested, you could be the one that we develop this with. And everybody was not interested. Right. So we thought, 
oh, it's just a lack of understanding. Let's create some beautiful products and then go back and pitch it again. We did that. That didn't change. And so I said, enough's enough. We're spending way too much money on this and nobody clearly and wants it. And it's heartbreaking it. to keep yeah. going back and these people well, like, no. And, and, and also using up lab time. And, yeah. And, and there's no commercial outcome. Yeah. Right? And so it's like, okay, so I know you guys love working with this and our cosmetic scientists or chemists were very excited by it. But it's got no future commercially. If we can't make this financial, mm. then it just becomes a, a hobby. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and we were eating quite a bit of money doing it. And I said, look, we're just going to have to leave this alone. And, and I sort of did a throwaway line at the end of it, or we develop it ourselves. And there it is. That's kind of, and, and that sort of sowed a seed. And naively we thought, and we did analysis and we said, well, what sort of skill set would we need to bring something to market? And we said, well, most of it's product development. That's the hardest part. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and brand. And so we went, well, we can do that. Tick, tick, tick. And we realized actually the hardest part's the commercial. <laughs> speaking with buyers yes. and all that sort of stuff, right? And so we completely underestimated the go-to-market part, mm. which is we really never got involved in that because once we did a product or a brand development project for somebody, we handed it on. Yeah, you tie it up in a little bow and it's done. Yeah. yeah. And it was like all the best, you know. <laughs> We've done the hard bit. Yeah. And they're like, well, yeah. And they had incredible systems and great sales teams and mm. very good relationships and they would just run with it and away they would go. So we never got involved in that second part, um, which now we had to. Not to mention things like stock and cash flow and yeah. you know sales teams and all that sort mm-hmm. of thing. So, um, and our parents shifted back from London at that point, and so did our sister. And so we said, do we shift it back to Australia? And we said, do we commercialize this in Miami? Um, which means that we've then got to really put down roots for a solid period of time, mm. 10, 20 plus years. Because once you build sort of facilities and create relationships and all yeah. those sorts of things and you expand that, it's hard to uproot that. And so we decided to shift it back to Australia, mm-hmm. um, and that was probably 2002, 2003, um, and, and took some of the team with us and came back to Australia, um, and and into Melbourne in particular, and thought that we would be in market in about sort of, uh, I thought, twelve to eighteen tops yep. months, and if we ended up launching two thousand eight. Yeah, <laughs> so it was <laughs> like solid six years. It was just everything, everything that we were conventionally doing in normal beauty environments didn't seem to work. Um, so, like, packaging had to change. Mm. Um, even polypropylene tube, which was commonplace and still is commonplace, leaches into product. Yeah. And so if you're creating a natural product, actually those chemicals can taint the natural product. Yeah. So we had to then think, well, how else can we package? And in those days, it wasn't um, only only last in this last year has there been a flexible polypropylene tube, or well, sorry, flexible plastic tube mm. that doesn't leach. Up till this last year, that's crazy. That's not hasn't mm. been the case. And then there was soft pot plastic bottles, and we had to 
we had to be careful with the materials or then we had to create our own moulds so that we could produce the bottles in Australia, which was good from a carbon footprint perspective, but we actually originally did it because carbon footprint wasn't a thing back no. then. Um, uh, we actually originally did it because we could control the plastic material and make sure that the bottles that were delivered to us, someone hadn't sort of added stuff to the material. Right. Um, so all sorts of things like that, closures, pumps. We went to an uh, aluminium tube because of that whole mm. non-leaching category, you know, um, issue. Um, so everything had to be challenged, basically. Um, and, and when it's challenged and it was early days, there wasn't answers. So you had to mm. sort of try and create your own answers. It was a whole new category. Yeah, it, yeah. it was a whole new space. And... Mm. and Probably a little bit early, um, and uh, which created pain because no of one course. really cared about it, right? You'd go to people and go, we can't use that. And they're like, why? Everyone uses <laughs> that. And you'd sort of explain to them that their product was hazardous or, mm. you know, after they got a, over the offence, then they would sort of maybe think about... And we were tiny. So our first runs were, you know... Uh, two to three thousand, which was huge for us. A bit in the grand scheme. But in the grand yeah. scheme, it wasn't even worth looking at for a lot of people mm. um, in terms of packaging and things. So um, it, it, it was a, um, a very challenging time, and everything took longer as a result. Mm. Even our pumps, we had to do a one way valve system on our pump so it didn't let ambient water into the, ah. into the product in a wet environment and taint the product. Um, which is why when you use a like a body wash or something, sometimes it can be a bit liquid at the end. Yeah. All that is is a tiny bit of water just dripping down the dip tube of the of the pump, um, which doesn't really matter when you've got very harsh sort of preservatives and surfactants. Yeah. But when you've got more, when you've got natural versions of those, they're more delicately balanced, and so you've got to keep that environment as pure as possible. Mm. I mean, a lot to work through in a six-year period. <laughs> it certainly explains the lead time. I would love to hear about if there were any, say, learnings that you took from that six-year, you know, getting everything ready period that you are perhaps still applying to your work now. Um, I think uh, the first thing... The first thing that we, one of the things that we developed over that six years was we have to divide and conquer. And so we started doing everything together. Mm -hmm. We're like, let's co-do this, let's co-manage this. Sure. Right? And you bring your certain skill set and I bring mine. And let's, so we'd have meetings together and travel together and do all these things together. But it was incredibly inefficient, actually. We could, of course. And, and so we sort of started, we, we then started to split and, and go, right, you've got your set of things, you do that, I've got mine, I'll do that. Um, and we started to get a lot more done. And that sounds very obvious, but what it does is it also releases you in the areas that you're good at and recognises that um, that there's no doubt when you bring in new team members, you have to allow them to bring their goal, mm. right? And that most of the people that will work for you will do their job better than you can do their job. Um, and so you have to create the environment that they have the space to do it. Yeah. And that means that when you get good people, you tend to 
keep them longer and they have yeah. more enjoyment in what they're doing. Um, and you also get more out of what you know their their, their um, expertise. I think that's been an interesting thing. Um, I think the second thing is the appreciation for the buying, the sales buying relationship, and learning um, what, um, learning that you have a, a, a responsibility to sell through a product, not sell in a product. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is still very important to today. Um, we we wherever we can focus our entire business around sell-through numbers, which come from a retailer uh, or our own retail, not sell-in numbers. It's very yeah. tempting to go, oh, our revenue number is X for this yeah. year. Um, but sometimes you're just literally what they call pipeline filling, which is filling up a retailer full of stock and it's sitting on their shelf. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, we had a, a hilarious conversation with a, with Maya, which was our first retailer mm. and, and, and major retailer in Australia. So we launched in 2008 in June, which is a terrible time to launch because it's stock take month and no one wants to buy anything. Oh, so I wouldn't even think about it. Yeah. Uh, which we didn't either. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we managed to get a few premium pharmacies on board and we sent the product to David Jones and Maya and they had not heard anything. So we just sort of assumed that the product either got lost or waylaid, so we sent some more, still nothing. And so then we called, nothing. Mm. And then we spoke to a friend of ours who sold leather goods to David Jones and said to them, um, you know, we're having real trouble getting our product into department store. Mm -hmm. And she said, yeah, so you know they get like 200 brands a year in beauty and they take one. Uh, and that's what it was like in those days. And so you, and they won't want to take a new brand because there's so much risk involved for them. They mm. build you up and then you don't make it financially, which was very much the case, where you were getting sort of a 90% fail rate in terms God. of just the financial mm. process of startup. Um, and so, the reality is we may, you know, they, they may not take you for two or three years, which was a huge shock to us. Yeah, there goes the business there plan. There goes the business plan. And, right. and all the sales that we had sort of put in our spreadsheets. Um, yeah. And out of the blue, about a month after that, so three to four months in, we got a call from Maya. And there was a lady called Marissa who was the buyer who was fantastic and said to us, um... I've seen your product come in, I want to talk to you. So we're like, wow, this mm -hmm. is amazing. So we shuffled up into Maya, into um, what was a very sort of dingy back room in those days, because they had their, their offices were close to the department store. Yeah. And it, was, it was a pretty average um, area, and we're like, this is not glamorous at all. <laughs> um, and sitting in this room, and she had all the products lined up on the table, and one product was opened, it was a um, hand cream, and I sort of said, um, and she said, so I, look, I've got 15 minutes. And we're like, okay. Great. Um, we've been at this for eight years or whatever it is, um, and you've got 15 minutes. And um, she said, uh, we've, we're going to take the brand, um, so we need to just work out logistics um, and just open accounts and get contracts signed and things like that. We need to do it quickly. We'd like to take it on quite quickly. And we said... 
and what I said, um, okay, great. Um, how do you know you want to take it when you've only tried one product? Which is a ridiculous thing to say to a buyer. <laughs> um, and she said, uh, okay, so let me help you understand. So I buy boxes and my job is to sell that box once. If this brand doesn't sell once, that's my, my mistake. Mm-hmm. If I sell it once and it doesn't sell more than once, it's your mistake because you haven't created a product that people want to buy again. And she said, basically, this is how it's going to work. You have three months. She's terrifying. <laughs> oh, my God. She said, you have three months. In three months' time, we'll have a meeting and we'll decide whether you get another three months. And then mm. that's basically how it continued for the first year. It was like... It was kind of like dating someone that didn't really want to date you, um, <laughs> but you were very keen to date. Yeah. Um, and you were sort of always on tender hooks, you know. Am I doing the right thing? Do they still like me? Um, and after the f- sort of 12-month point, we, our meetings went out to six months. Okay, good. And we were like, wow. She so must like and, and there was no more talk about whether you'll stay or not. It was about different op- opportunities. And uh-huh. we expanded from the original three stores to eight stores and – we were then talking about going to uh, 30 stores. So it started to sort of work in mind. Mm. At which point David Jones said, um, we would like to... We're still here. We, yeah, we would like to, to, to work with you. And so, and it was really, I think, because to be honest, I think David Jones were keen because Maya had us at mm. that point. Um, and which comes back to the dating thing. Comes back to the, yeah. <laughs> so another that, suitor. We, we got attracted. We got attracted <laughs> uh, all of a sudden. And so that was just sort of a, a, a massive learning experience. And then um, we had these other learning experiences where um, I remember the buyer for my calling up and um, we then hit Christmas and we'd done a little Christmas offering. And she said, hey, um, there's some Christmas kits that you've got left over. Mm-hmm. So... Um, are you okay if we write those down? We're thinking about 30, 40% write down. And we said, she said, that way you can be included in Boxing Day sale. And we said, yeah, well, look, if you're happy to do it, then we're happy to do it. And she said, okay, great, done. So she confirmed it in an email. And then in January, we got a bill for like, 50k or 40 whatever it was um, it was a decent amount at those time, that time for us and we went um, I think there's been some confusion someone sent us an invoice oh my, my heart she, is in my throat and she <laughs> said yeah yeah you agreed to the write down and we said we thought you were asking about the write down from a brand perspective like are you okay as a brand to be discounted and we were like well for boxing day sure. sales yeah we'll be okay with that what she meant was, you're going to pick up, we're going to share the margin and we're going to maintain our 50% margin and you're going to have to wear the other oh bit that we write God. down, which we had no concept of at that point, which seems quite normal now, but at that point it was like, oh my gosh. Uh-huh. So we scurried around to try and find the money to pay the, <laughs> the yeah. bill to my, uh, and started to learn how retail worked, which really, um, and it's changed immeasurably over the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, it's hard to imagine what it was like uh, when we started. Um, and I think, and we're now an exclusive partner with David Jones. Mm. Um, and even David Jones in the last three years has changed incredibly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons we love working with David Jones is that the what they're now doing at retail is it's sort of like the new space in retail. It's more sophisticated. Yeah. There's more animation, more consumer engagement, um, and and there's they're bringing experience back into retail, right? Which is which is something. It's not just a transaction, mm-hmm. um, and they're doing more and more around that. And they're also allowing brands to bring that too. Mm-hmm. So, which in the old days, you had to pay lots of money for brand space. Yes, and it was a real privilege um, to even mm-hmm. have the ability to activate. And if you weren't Chanel, it was pretty difficult to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, now they're saying, well. Whether you're Chanel or whether you're Grand Alchemist or whether you're a brand new brand, what's actually important is what theatre are you creating yeah. for retail and what reason are you giving our consumer to enjoy and to 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 come in and experience the store? Mm-hmm. And how do we create spaces that we can do very unique things and interesting things that can only be experienced physically? Yeah. And so I think that mentality which comes from the very top um, makes it as a brand a total joy to work with because mm. you're not spending time convincing people that this is necessary. Yeah. They're already on your page. And so that's why David Jones has been such an important shift for mm. us, which we already made recently, um, in, into retail. And all of those learnings during that initial stage of what actually what is your responsibility as a brand to mm. work with a retailer and to make sure you're getting sell out still ring true today yeah well you've kind of answered my next question because i wanted to ask about department stores quite broadly because i've had a lot of brands on the podcast that are or have launched as a digitally native brand mm-hmm. and there are obviously you know pros and cons to that i would imagine with a department store one of the disadvantages is that you are sitting literally next to your competitors. It's not like they've come into your store and then, I don't know, it's just like a psychological thing of physically walking out of the door. If they don't want to shop your brand, they just take one step to the right and there's another brand. Is that something that you had to kind of reconcile in the beginning? I think um, when you first do it, it's scary because you Mm. think, oh my, and you're very conscious of what everybody's doing around you. Mm. Almost a little bit, bit, bit paranoid. Yes. You spend quite a bit of time focusing on everybody else, maybe even more than at, at the peril of yourself sometimes. Yeah. Um, I think after you've done it for a while, um, and you've got to remember when we started, um, websites weren't a thing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so that's <laughs> ridiculous, right? Um, when you say, and then we went through a stage where you can have a website, but you can't trade e-com on the site because that's like cutting your retailer's lunch. Um, right. You're sort of stealing from your retailer. Mm-hmm. And then the retailer said, well, actually, it's okay if you have e-com. But that wasn't until about 2013. God. So, which isn't that long no. ago. Um, so, uh, so in ter- I, I, think, I think in terms of sitting next to your competitors, I think the wonderful, the wonderful thing about that is um, – I'm a strong believer that brands have an implicit promise to the consumer, mm-hmm. um, and there's a is a almost like a um, a contract between a brand and a consumer to 
to offer real value. Right. And not only real value, but um, something that isn't on offer next door, Mm -hmm. right? And I think whether it's through brand and you look at Chanel Dior YSL, Mm -hmm. which are sort of luxury fashion houses but also have skincare and beauty. Yes. um, They all offer something different to each other, whether it's not so much product-based, in their case it's more brand and story-based. Yeah. and then you start going down the food chain a little bit and end up down at us, which is a much smaller brand. Um, we have a responsibility to actually offer something that is quite unique and different, that when you're standing next to somebody, whether it's Akeels or whoever, mm. that we don't only um, appear different visually, but we actually uh, have a very unique proposition and therefore something that is different and important for the customer to understand and hear. Mm. Um, and whether it fits that consumer or not, or that customer or not, um, uh, is up to that customer. But yeah. what you, what it forces you to do is to really understand why you've started and why you do what you do. Mm-hmm. And why it's not just uh, another thing. Yeah. Right? And, and I think with the proliferation of brands in the market, particularly beauty brands at the moment, there's a lot of jumping on the beauty um, trend. Yes. And there's a lot of same, sameness. Mm. And I think the challenge for emerging brands and the continual challenge as an existing brand is really understanding why you exist and what it is that you bring that's special and unique mm-hmm. and, then, and then never taking your eye off that and developing that continually. Yeah. Um, and I think that's... Um, a clarifying moment when you're physically doing it. Mm-hmm. I think the same moment exists online. It just happens to be a click versus a step, yeah. right? Um, but but you're not as conscious of it online because mm. you're only looking at your own site all the time and you're yeah. trying to drive people to your site. But the reality is the next site's just sort of a couple of clicks away. Yeah. Um, and, and in retail, it's a couple of steps away and you have to get your message sharp, you have to get your recruitment strategy or your, your the way that you engage a consumer mm. really crisp because people don't have time uh, and they don't want to have long conversations. Yeah. Um, they And they want to understand whether this is something for, for, for them or not. Mm. And, and I think that um, uh, um, physical sense is incredibly important for that yeah um uh because you you know there's no hiding no there's no pretending none at all (laughs) i think that's such good advice too that's been my the last 18 months every project i've taken on i'm like what's it for yeah i think it's yeah true across any sort of business i read an interview with you from a couple of years ago in which you were talking about how the brand has always resonated really strongly with Asian customers and performed yep. really well in that particular market. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, I think it operates on a couple of levels. I think the first thing about um, Asia and particularly China, um, and I'd say this about China, I think Hong Kong and Taiwan, the greater China area as well, also um, can be as part of this, but more China than anything, is that there's so much... Um, distrust with personal care and food 
Okay. And um, and even on their own premium brands, there has been uh, so many instances where things have been put into the market that should never have got to market. Yeah. Shortcuts which lead to financial gain, but actually um, are not uh, are not in line with that customer contract. Yes. Right? That that that. I'm offering you something of real value, and 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 so there's a distrust around their own products. Mm-hmm. China produced products. Australia has really started to emerge as a place of trust and um, and integrity when it comes to what we do and how what we create. Uh, and I think it's partly to do with our extremely strict food mm. uh, and also TGA requirements. Yes. And. So, and because of our proximity and relationship with China, I think that's a nice um, uh, connection. Uh, and and I th- so I think naturally, just because of Australia, yeah, we have an affiliation um, with China and a natural attraction to China. Um, whereas in America, it's not so much the case, and in Europe, it's not so much the case. Um, but putting Australia made on your on your bottle or box um, only gets you so far. I think the other thing that's emerged in China is there's a new consumer that started to to emerge over the last sort of three to five years, mm-hmm. which really is the second tier of the of the uh, the newly wealthy Chinese, sorry, the, the second generation of the newly wealthy Chinese um, business person or, or consumer who are less interested in pure label mm-hmm. uh, and and sort of traditional luxury and more interested in authenticity and intelligent luxury. Yeah. And so that comes down to they hunt products out and brands out that are authentic, that provide real value and that um, uh, sort of tick their... Uh, their intelligent brand box. Mm-hmm. They love style. They yes. like a new kind of style. Uh, I was in China recently in Shanghai and I was meeting with a, um, an online platform who does cross-border and, um, and very high-end. I, I do vintage Hermes bags and all mm. sorts of things, fashion bags, fa- fashion um, clothing as well. And they were remarking... Um, she was wearing this sort of gorgeous suit, and they were remarking on the uh, uh, to me about this sort of um, change in fashion. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, you know, it's interesting. You've got a beautiful suit on. It's interesting. You know, you're not sort of head to toe in Louis Vuitton or something, mm. right? Which has traditionally been a stereotypical view, but it's traditionally been um, a characteristic of the of the premium purchasing yes. fashion um, China client. And uh, and they were wearing, it was a Comme des Garçons suit, mm. and it was like subtle but gorgeous. And, yeah. And, and they knew about a lot more than I knew about Comme des Garçons, <laughs> about, the, about the season, about what they're looking to, you know, and they started talking to me about it. And there was a knowledge and intelligence about why they had made that purchase mm. that actually was far more developed than what we would normally see in Europe. We would 
normally go into a store and go, that's a great looking jacket, I'll take it. Yeah. But they had a whole rationale as to why the purchase was happening. Amazing. And I think that when it comes to our industry, natural, organic, um, science-based, those sorts of things are starting to really be on their radar and important. Mm. It's not just natural healthy, yeah, um, which has been you know, characteristic of our industry for, for a while. It's natural healthy with clever formulations and using sort of scientifically proven um, uh, ingredients and, and practices. Mm-hmm. So, and then also they get that it's not just a topical cream isn't going to save your, your beauty. Um, it's a holistic approach. Mm. And so that also connects in with them. Yeah. And being holistic matters to them as a consumer. Um, and they're also willing to spend a little bit more time in understanding a brand. Right. I find the American consumer has been brought up on much more instantaneous understanding mm-hmm. and uh, really enjoy getting to know a brand quickly. Yeah. Um, and, and don't tend to allow too much time. Like, I mean, there's been all sorts of things thrown around, like if you can't say it in five seconds, you've lost them. I don't think it's quite like that. But, yeah. But it's certainly quick. Whereas, um, and if you take it to the extreme, the Japanese consumers that we we sell to in, in Tokyo and Japan, um, they will get to like the 17th page of our website and say, can I have a bit more information, please? Um, whereas some markets, you need the five words. Yeah. Right? I think China sort of sits in between that and is going more Japanese than they are particularly, you know, than, than the sort of mm. American quick model. So for a brand like ours, um, that works nicely. Okay. You just now have mentioned this, the kind of, I mean, blend is the wrong word, but science, but a holistic approach and it being organic. You've taken that a step further in 2018, I think, is that when the Nutramedics? Yes. Nutricosmetics, sorry, Nutramedics is yeah. another brand. Um, <laughs> the beauty supplements. Yes. I would love to hear more about this range and that link between inner health and the skin. Sure. Um, we've, we've had, uh, some call them cosmeceuticals, nutraceuticals, um, beauty supplements. Mm. We've had it for quite a long time. Uh, when we first developed them, uh, it was again way too early. Mm-hmm. Uh, and department store at that point thought it was a ridiculous thing to put them on shelf. Um, and it probably was, um, but we really didn't have a... Because we, we didn't have our own retail store at that time. Um, we had no real avenue mm-hmm. for them. So what we would do is we would recommend them in, in um, uh, consultation. Some, some consumers would take them. We had them ourselves. Yeah. Uh, in very low volumes. And then in uh, 2017, 2016, we started to get a bit of, you know, those things that you presented to us guys, uh, you still do those? And we're like, yep. Yes. And so we started to get more interest in them. Uh, and then I think a couple of brands did it, really paved the way for mm-hmm. the space in department store. Right. Um, and then department store, um, seeing is believing. Uh, and yeah. so 
it's a kind of a chicken and egg thing. And then they saw that it could actually work. And really, through the efforts of other brands, they they sort of said, yes, this works. And then they developed an appetite. Mm -hmm. And one thing they are very good at doing is understanding if that works, let's chase it and create a category and see how far we can go with it. And so that's when we got an opportunity to really take ours into the market um, with certain department stores. And the first was Barney's in New York. Yeah. Um, and and then it's just rolled out from there. Um, and I think it's very much relating to the rest of the work that we do. In our retail store, we do, you know, um, drip therapy, which is yeah. you know, IV-based nutrients um, for the skin. We do oxygen treatment, facials, um, physical facials that stimulate the skin's um, circulation and help metabolize waste and mm -hmm. things like that. Nutraceuticals are a very important part of it. And part of our nutraceuticals is a probiotic, which is about gut health yeah. and nutrient absorption. So, you know, interestingly enough, um, the, 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 the things that we employ in our physical space, we try and bring to counter wherever we can. Mm. But in our store, it's a, it's, it, we've got complete control. So it's got a more developed view of that right. um, or, or, or presentation of that. Um, really relate back, those things relate back to when we started it's in 2001, you know, 2002, mm. uh, and, and understanding wellness. Mm -hmm. They're not that, they're not too distant. Mm -hmm. It's been over 10 years since you mm. launched the brand and close to 20 years since you began sort of developing products for other companies. What, you've touched on some of them already, but what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry in that time? Wow, it's it's so unrecognisable. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think like all significant changes, they everything's been consumer led. Yeah. Um, and I think it started with um, the control of information. Mm -hmm. If I look back. Um, the decentralization of information. So if, if, if you think about, if you wanted to, to, to try something new, whether it was a garment, a, brand, a fashion brand, or a skincare brand, where would you go? Well, really the only avenue was a department store. Yeah. Because the department store was the, the curated collection of beautiful things for you to experience for the first time and potentially purchase. Yeah. And then become a great fan of. Uh, so what was the gateway to the department store? Well, that was controlled entirely through the buyer. Sure. So in those days, in order for you, when we started, in order for you to get any sort of traction, you had to convince a buyer and then appeal to the consumer via the buyer and the department store. Even the range that the buyer selected was ultimately at their discretion. Mm -hmm. So the industry was essentially dominated by the by the key brands that had the most leverage right so if you think about half the beauty floor it, you know it's not quite as pure as this but half the beauty floor is estee lauder and the other half is l'oreal close so to it close <laughs> to it right and so you know most consumers don't realize that l'oreal own you know amani and a whole bunch of other brands mm -hmm. um but and they all appear like separate brands on the floor but they're just really two companies. Yeah. So if L'Oreal want to introduce uh, a brand called Origins, 
or estate lord want to introduce mm-hmm. origins, I should say. Uh, and the buyer's like, eh, I'm not really that keen on Origins. And they go, well, are you really keen on one of our other brands? Yeah. Um, uh, like Kiehl's, for instance. Um, then uh, you might um, give us a shot, shot with Origins, mm-hmm. right? So these kind of, uh, I think Kiehl's is actually L'Oreal, but anyway, um, uh, these kinds of negotiations would quietly go on in the background. When you come with one brand, which is doing very little, which is just a startup, and you're trying to convince a buyer to give you space and you're fighting against that, mm-hmm. and maybe even potentially a counter, there's a lot more at play than actually the value that you bring to the consumer. Yeah. Now, in comes the internet. Yes. Uh, and the decentralization of information and the ability for the consumer to see a brand that wasn't previously visible. Mm-hmm. And then all ki- also comes in a consumer who says, I'm not sure if I believe the traditional rhetoric of beauty. Yeah. And I'm looking for something a bit more authentic and po- probably not as mass. We like this consumer. We like this consumer. <laughs> and, and so there was both an appetite and an opportunity for that consumer to grow mm-hmm. and an environment for them to grow in. And that sort of teetered along for a while. And then all of a sudden we got a thing called an influencer. Yeah. Right? Which is only relatively new. <laughs> and they started to do some of the heavy lifting because mm-hmm. the information that wasn't previously available started to become so overwhelming for most consumers that they couldn't work out what was real and mm. what was not. Well, the influencer said, just send me the product. Yeah. And let me try it. And I'll give it my rating. And if you are like me, you'll listen to me. Right, so they spent vast amounts of their free time mm. filming themselves trying product and shortcutting the selection process for the consumer. Yeah, and so the rise of the influencer then helped create mm. more clarity in terms of what they might look for, mm-hmm. which then, ironically, started to drive what the department store was interested in, because that was already momentum. Yeah, so it started to flip. Um, and I think uh, now we're entering an interesting new space, I think, which is where the influencer um, is the credibility of the influencer becomes important. Yes. And the impartiality of them, mm. which wasn't really the case even two years ago. No. And so, you know, I think the space just continues to evolve as platforms emerge and as... Uh, but I think one thing's for sure is the beauty industry will never be the same, which is a good thing. Mm. Um, and and the opportunity for the consumer to experience something new, mm-hmm. try something different, um, and to make their own choice based on more information and a greater level of understanding becomes... Uh, is so much greater. Yeah. And... Um, and better, I think, for everybody. Yeah. Um, certainly better for competition. Um, scary for big brands, I think. Yes. Um, but, you know, ultimately, um, uh, there'll be the brands that exist that have grown through hype, mm-hmm. um, that go up quickly, but tend to come back quickly. Um, and then the brands that um, I think have have hype but also have substance yeah and i think we're seeing sort of you know 
there's lots of rationalization. It doesn't look like it, but there's been lots of rationalization mm. in the industry. Where, for instance, when we started, um, there was, a, there was a, a bunch of new brands, well, when I say a bunch, probably 10 at the time, mm. which doesn't seem like much now, um, uh, brands that started with us that none of them exist today. But one of Crazy. Them, one of them exists today. One of them exists today uh, in Australia. So, mm. you know, you start to see um, the market levels, essentially, mm. um, based on the consumer demand. So I think there's a much tighter... So all of that said, I think the relationship between the brand and the consumer is much tighter. Mm, I agree. And the success of a brand is much more dependent on the quality and what you're doing mm. than it has been in the past. There's been a lot of other factors at play. Wonderful, wonderful products and brands have not seen the light of day mm. because of the infrastructure that they had to go through. Mm-hmm. My final question, mm. what is next for Grown Alchemist? Uh, I think this is a super exciting time for us. Um, we've, I think in the early parts of a brand launch, from a business perspective, you are constantly focused on staying alive. Yep. <laughs> and figuring out how to pay bills and cash mm-hmm. flow and learn and learn the bits of the business that you don't know. I think because we've been around a while now, um, we are finding ourselves with the luxury of being able to turn our attention to things that we much prefer to turn our attention mm-hmm. to, which is um, increased um, customer experience. Yes. We are, are launching our, our, our first store next month, um, which has a whole bunch of integrated services which relate to beauty so uh, and connect to beauty. Uh, and I think bringing a holistic message to beauty, which has really been at our core since we started, um, and having finally the opportunity to do that is probably one of the most exciting things that we've done so far in our journey. Um, and, and have a really authentic, holistic conversation with a consumer to essentially really help them achieve their beauty potential is is super exciting. Um, And I think the thing that we've realised through this process is how do we take those experiences and bring them as much as possible into the virtual world? Mm. So I think the next thing for us is focusing, um, is continuing to maintain focus on what we're about, which is improving skin function and capability of the skin so that people can really see a significant change in the way their skin behaves and looks. And doing that through every possible mechanism, every possible um, channel, and every possible innovation, and not be myopic and stuck with a cream. Because I think we owe it to our consumer to explore all technologies to achieve that, whether it's a supplement, whether it's some sort of um, light, so we use light therapy in our mm-hmm. space um, in terms of renewal and repair, or whether it's some sort of futuristic, healthy um, vapor that we expose ourselves to. Um, you know, ten years from now, we 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 our responsibility isn't to provide skincare; it's to create beauty, and that's the contract we have with our consumer: um, is is to always be offering them the best way to access their skin's potential and beauty and beautiful skin. So the exciting part of the next phase is having the time to really uh, 
take advantage of the new spaces and technology that are emerging um, all the time that give us the ability to, to tell that message in new and, 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 and provide new and different services that create that moment. That was Jeremy Moats, co-founder and CEO of Grown Alchemist, which you can find on Instagram at Grown Alchemist. To read my interview with Jeremy, you can visit glowjournal.com. And for more beauty news, you can find me on Instagram at jemkwatts or at glow.journal. If you liked this episode, please do not forget to subscribe, rate, review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us. I'm Gemma Watts. You've been listening to the Glow Journal podcast and thank you for joining me.